Hi, everyone. My name is Don Davis. I'm one of the hosts of Supply Chain Secrets, and I'm introducing this week's episode. So here we are recording on April 11th, and uh, a lot of things are happening in the industry. Um, it was an exciting time to talk to someone who is a subject matter expert on reshoring. And this was Rosemary Coates we had on the show. She's an author, board member, podcaster, done a lot of different things and uh, knows a lot about the reshoring space. So we started off about talking about the change from offshoring to reshoring. And if some of you are been around like me, um, you probably remember that like in the 90s and early 2000s, this was exploding and everyone was looking at offshoring everything they could. And now that started to change and you hear people talking more about reshoring. So what was the impetus to drive that? And and when did that happen? And, and what's the current status? And then we talk about what industries are easier for reshoring. Is everyone the same? Do we see more trends in different spaces? And uh, Rosemary shared her insights there. Um, and then we talked about where people go. Like, what does exactly reshoring mean? It, it tends to feel like people are talking about pulling out of China. We've seen people move out of China and move to other places in Southeast Asia like Vietnam. Vietnam might be at capacity currently, but does that mean U.S.? Does that mean Mexico? What are we seeing? What are the trends there? And, you know, what are the effects of infrastructure? Because some of these places that you might be moving to may not have the same infrastructure. So is that something you have to be conscious of? Then we went back in time a little bit and talked about the Trump tariffs, the impact of the Trump tariffs. And then what are the geopolitical things happening today? Because Trump now is several years behind us, but now you can see other things that are happening. What's top of mind and what should shippers look out for? And then we talk about risk mitigation and what are your strategies to mitigate risk when it comes to your supply chain if you're thinking about reshoring. And I think Rosemary had some great insights there. And then we talked about the benefits of of reshoring. Like why why would you do that? What what's in it for a company? And if you haven't thought about doing it, what have others seen when they are able to reshore closer to the US? And and then finally we talk about where do you start? Because it's all overwhelming. Like you have different priorities. You might be thinking about different things as a company, but it doesn't make sense to start somewhere. And I thought Rosemary gave some great insights there. And then finally, as usual, we let our guests turn the tables and ask Caroline a tough question. So Rosemary fired away a question and uh, we had a lot of fun answering it. So had a lot of fun doing the show. I think you'll like it a lot. So give it a listen and don't forget, give us feedback, rate us, review us wherever you find our podcast. So enjoy the show, everybody. The Supply Chain Secrets Podcast is brought to you by NYSHEX. NYSHEX is the digital infrastructure for global shipping. They're uniting shippers, carriers, MBOs through a digital platform that improves contract performance, strengthens relationships, and reduces manual workload. You want to learn more? Go to www.nyshex.com to find out. You are now listening to the Supply Chain Secrets Podcast with Don Davis. Hi, everyone. My name is Don Davis. I'm the Senior Vice President of MBO Experience at NYCHEX and former executive of Hapag Lloyd and CMA CGM. And I'm Caroline Weaver, NVOCC Account Manager at NYCHEX, former associate at Flexport, and aspiring supply chain influencer. And with that, I'm very excited for our guest today, Rosemary Coates. Yeah, so Rosemary, Rosemary Rosemary's background is uh, pretty extensive, actually. And um, I'm going to read through a few of these things here. I think there's others here, but uh, I think I'm going to nail most of it. Uh, you're a management consultant. You're a best-selling author. You're a board member. You're a founder at the Reshoring Institute. You have your own podcast. You've worked abroad in Asia and Europe. And I would say you're a subject matter expert on manufacturing and outsourcing in Asia 
Europe and the U.S. So that hopefully that that covers your background. I'm sure there's more to it, but uh, but quite an impressive background, I'd say. So welcome to the show, Rosemary. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, um, you know, before we get started, so Caroline, you know, I was going through the show notes and uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but this is our 48th supply chain secrets episode. So uh, I never thought it would happen. Uh, two years ago, roughly about two years ago, we started on this journey with Brian Most um, and things have evolved. And now we have Caroline here as a co-host, but uh, 48 episodes. What's your reaction to that? Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot of stuff to talk about. But then, <laughs> you know, supply chain is complicated. So it's, you know, it's not surprising. I think the podcast will never end based on all <laughs> the things that happen. Yeah, that's right. Always something to talk about. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think supply chain is an interesting space and, uh, you know, really excited to talk today because you are an expert at, at reshoring. And I think that's the topic we want to dig into today. And, you know, this idea of reshoring is something I think has evolved a little bit more over the past couple of years. I mean, you'd be more of an expert on it than I am. But for a long time, and, you know, I've been around this industry for a long time, I guess. But this whole idea of offshoring was a thing. And this whole idea of like, what can we take and put it somewhere else and then ship it back to my, ourselves? Or maybe there were some functions that got offshored. But now you hear a lot more about this um, idea of reshoring. And and so what, what do you think is happening there? What's, what's causing that to, to flip from where it was maybe, you know, 20 years ago? Yeah, well, 20 years ago, well, in 2001, actually, China ascended to the World Trade Organization um, as a full-fledged member. And when that happened, the door sort of flew open and everybody wanted to go to China because the trade restrictions were lifted. Um, there were no more quotas. There were, you know, all kinds of things that um, made it easier. And uh, obviously it was a low cost country and, you know, with lots of uh, labor available and so forth. So you know, during the um, late 90s and the early 2000s, many of my clients said to me, you know, let's go to China. Our competitors are there. Um, you know, it's a low cost area. Let's let's go squeeze. Uh, let's go squeeze some costs out of our operations and, and uh, build an operation in China. And that's what I did for about 15 years. I helped lots of companies uh, offshore to China, set up operations there, find suppliers there. Um, I spent lots of time in China working on projects and so forth. And then um, during the 2012 presidential election, so 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, uh, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were both China bashing, saying, oh, you know, it's all China's fault and all of our economic woes are due to China and on and on and on. And I'm thinking, holy cow, I can't tell anybody what I do for a living. You know, <laughs> this is pretty awful. Um, so, uh, but, you know, really that sparked a lot of the initial conversation. And I think that was the beginning of the reshoring movement uh, and rethinking global operations to a certain extent. So, you know, clients started talking to us about the potential for manufacturing in America. And, um, you know, it was kind of surprising. But out of that, we built a methodology and an approach and eventually started the Reshoring Institute. Um, and today, the Reshoring Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. We try to play it right down the middle. Um, and we help companies through our research, uh, reshore. And uh, we also do small consulting projects and things like labeling projects and site locations and that sort of thing. But really, the what's happened is um, the 
global operations environment, supply chain environment, uh, people have started rethinking their global strategy. So instead of saying, well, you know, we we have manufactured in the U.S. for 40 years and then we went to China and we've manufactured there for 20 years and now let's come home. That's not the way it, it works. I mean, today's environment, uh, it's a very strategic decision and complicated. Uh, and companies and CEOs are thinking through their strategy. So should they keep some manufacturing in China? bring some back to the U.S., move some or establish new operations in other low-cost countries or Mexico. So, you know, now it's a world landscape and, and you know, the decision is not just all based on economics. There are lots of other factors these days. So that's kind of where we're at today, seeing a big trend, a positive trend in reshoring. A lot of companies are interested uh, in moving their manufacturing somewhere, um, basically out of China because of the situation there. Uh, and so we're helping them as much as we can. Are there certain industries where it's easier to reshore and certain industries where it's a bit more difficult? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's easier or harder, but there are certain industries that are coming back for sure. I mean, we know, all know about semiconductors, right? The semiconductors, uh, their factories being built in Arizona, New Mexico, Idaho, uh, Ohio, Texas, and New York. Uh, and that is partially based on government funding and the, eff the efforts to Re-establish man, uh, semiconductor manufacturing in America. So that's that's one big one. Pharmaceuticals um, during the pandemic, uh, I think there was a fairly big scare about pharmaceuticals. I mean, mo you know, we found that most of the building block pharmaceuticals are made in China and India, and those are the basics that go into things like antibiotics. So, you know, if those plants were shut down for some reason in other foreign countries, we would be unable to make or unable to make uh, um, antibiotics in the U.S. So, you know, some of those kind of building block things are coming back. We're also seeing a lot of activity in plastics, surprisingly. Um, so plastics are an interesting industry. They're there's often a fast demand from customers. So customers are saying, oh, I need this part and I need it, you know, next Wednesday. Uh, and so what plastics companies have done is they continue to keep their mold making in China, where it's about a tenth of the cost to make a mold there. But then bringing that mold back to the U.S. and manufacturing or actually producing the parts with that mold close to their customers. So we're seeing, you know, that, uh, you know, automotive, a lot of it has moved to Mexico out of China. So Wuhan, which was the epicenter for the pandemic, is the Detroit of China. It's where automotive, most automotive companies are based. And so, um, you know, a lot of the automotive companies decided to move their production or rebalance their production with a lot more in Mexico where you can simply drive across the border. You don't have to put your stuff in a container and wait for eight weeks to get it. So, you know, the, depending on the industry and the kind of supply chain it is, yeah, I mean, we're seeing movement across the board. And um, when companies leave China, where, where do you see them going? Because I know now, again, it wasn't that long ago, but I worked for an ocean carrier, CMACGM. And during that time, there was um, a number of countries leaving China and and you saw like this movement to like Vietnam and Southeast Asia still 
like huge growth there, but dwarfed by China because China was doing so much. And then you hear you mentioned Mexico that like things have moved from Wuhan to Mexico. But is there is there any place? Is it coming back to the U.S.? So when it it moves, like, is there a definition of like what reshoring means? Is it is it within a certain place? And and do you see uh, it more prevalent somewhere versus somewhere else? Yeah, it's really hard to put it in a box, per se. When we talk about reshoring, um, generally we include um, manufacturing that's coming back to the U.S. from overseas, but also companies that make a positive decision to stay here to begin with. So, you know, they may go through the analysis and say, well, it isn't that much cheaper to go overseas, so we're going to stay in the U.S., and that's a kind of reshoring as well. And then there's also foreign direct investment, which is, you know, foreign companies that are actually setting up manufacturing in the U.S. And that's a kind of reshoring as well. So, you know, it's a little um, gray in terms of the how you characterize it. Um, and it's really difficult to collect any statistics. So most of the statistics that are out there about reshoring are probably directionally correct, um, but not very not very strictly valid per se. So, you know, what we see, most most companies will tell you, or most uh, researchers will tell you there's about a couple hundred, 200 to 300,000 jobs coming back a year, which is a pretty good number. And then also when you consider there are companies that are never going overseas, they make the decision to stay here. It's a, it's a fairly big, robust movement. And then in terms of where are they going, um, so that's a, interesting. We, we, um, we're seeing movement all over the world, and we just finished a, a major study, research study in October, and it's posted on our landing page at reshoringinstitute.org. But on the, on the, that study, we looked at 12 different countries and compared labor rates in various job categories uh, in these different countries and how much it costs for the labor in these different countries. Um, I would say, you know, Vietnam is very popular, but as you mentioned, Vietnam is tiny by comparison to China. There's only 900 million people there. Um, and so they're sort of full up, I would say. Um, the factories are very busy. It's hard to find capacity in Vietnam. Uh, but, you know, there are other countries in Asia that companies are choosing um, because they're lower cost, but also they're lower risk. So, for example, Malaysia or Indonesia, um, Thailand is another place. Um, and then, and then Mexico. And Mexico is a, a great example. The, the labor rates in central Mexico are very low. Um, and in, you know, they're one of the lowest in the, in the world in the, in central Mexico along the border. It's more expensive. Um, which is great, and they're they're fairly industrialized, but they don't have anywhere close to the kind of infrastructure that China has. And so, you know, it's a developing place also. So, you know, every place that you look at around the world has got its pros and cons, and where it is along the development spectrum is, is you know, something to take into consideration. Uh, the other thing I would say is that you have to really look at the individual supply chain. So, the supply chain for, for example, um, for pharmaceuticals is very different from a supply chain for making apparel and footwear. Um, so if you have like, apparel and footwear are notorious for having lots of labor and you have to have people that are sewing stuff. Right. So um, it's really difficult to automate some of those processes. 
So in, in versus making a pharmaceutical, which is all fully automated production, um, you know, all, it's all machinery or, or another good example would be textile. So while you're making apparel and footwear and there's a lot of labor, if you're making textiles, that's all automated also. There's hardly any labor. So you, where you have big labor content in your product, then you would want to look for a low cost labor environment. But if you don't, if you're fully automated and labor isn't such a huge factor, you have a lot more options. I mean, you can go to places like the U.S., uh, the South, and in, in Georgia, in uh, Mississippi, and the Carolinas. Um, those places have low-cost uh, labor and operational environments that can be quite competitive. So, you know, each individual case is different. It's really hard to make broad, sweeping statements about what's happening across industries. Is it challenging for some industries because of the gap in time where they weren't developing the infrastructure or the machinery? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing is labor. I mean, gee, you know, in 20 years, we shipped all this manufacturing over to China and all the skills and labor went with it. So tool and die makers, for example, plumbers, electricians, um, these people are, have, you know, their jobs were taken away and sent to China. And so there were no up and comers as a result. And so they, um, so, um, there were no, um, you know, there were no backfilling of a lot of these kind of positions. So when we say we're going to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., um, you can't just set up shop and expect to have the skills you need. Great example is, um, is, um, an elevator company uh, that was set up a shop in Florence, South Carolina. They had been manufacturing in Mexico and they set up a, a brand new factory, built a brand new factory in South Carolina, Florence, South Carolina. And um, it's Otis Elevator. And they um, sort of threw the doors open. And even though there was a fairly high unemployment rate in the area, the workers that were available didn't have the right skills to run a fully automated manufacturing site. And so they stumbled along for a year, lost $60 million, the CEO was fired. You know, these are horror stories um, that when you're not prepared or you don't think through all the aspects of reshoring, you can have a disaster on your hands. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes sense. And um, if we, we think about uh, like the whole Trump administration, I think during the Trump administration, you know, you said that uh, during Obama, they were negative on China. And I think Trump kind of like took it to the next level as far yeah. as you know, like c complaining about China and really, you know, imposing these tariffs and things. Um, and, and I think that drove quite a bit of change. Uh, I think there's other geopolitical factors today, like Trump, that was now three, four years ago. Now there's other things happening. Like what, what's top of mind when you think about the current ge geopolitical changes and what are those challenges and, and what is the impact of those geopolitical situations? Yeah, well, you know, I can tell you, um, I think the the worst of what happened during the Trump administration, not only the tariffs at 25%, which, um, you know, caused a lot of, a lot of consternation across manufacturers, most of whom applied for exemptions and, and, or absorbed the additional cost or passed it on to customers. Uh, so beyond that, though, there was so much um, 
adverse information out there regarding China. So there was, you know, constant China bashing also. And uh, China didn't just sit back and take it. Um, they were in turn American bashing in, inside of China. So it used to be I'd go to China and they welcomed me with open arms and wanted to know what I knew. And, you know, we, we just had a fun time and got along well and, and so forth. But today's environment is completely different. Americans are not so welcome anymore. Um, and it's because the deterioration in the, in the relationship between the countries. And um, it's not getting any better. Even under the Biden administration, they kept those tariffs in place. And as you know, you hear in the news every day, there are conflicts with China all the time now, which, you know, was kind of didn't happen for 20 years. So, you know, that's a big issue and it's going to cause a lot of rethinking. But it's not the only geopolitical issue, of course. And if China, uh, I would say not if China, but when China decides to invade Taiwan, because they will. Right. So they look at at Taiwan as being just a sort of a wayward child that they're going to bring back into the family sooner or later. And when they do that, um, this is going to be a huge impact on the world um, because of the extensive manufacturing of semiconductors um, in Taiwan uh, with Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, TSMC that uh, makes a vast majority of semiconductors, advanced semiconductors that we use around the world. Uh, so and when that happens, that's, you know, another geopolitical issue that's going to cause all kinds of problems. Um, China has a death grip on rare earth elements, which are used in, uh, in electronics manufacturing and a lot of other uses, magnets and so forth. Um, and they control 85% of the market. And it isn't that you can't find rare earths. They're everywhere. And there's certainly lots of deposits. In fact, a, a brand new uh, deposit was discovered in a place called Sheep Creek, Montana. I have to be careful when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> a huge deposit was just discovered and announced a few months ago there. Uh, but the problem is that mining and refining rare earths is a very dirty industry. So it's pollutes and it's, you know, it's a real problem. Most of China manufacturing of rare earths is along the Mongolian border uh, for that very reason, because it's a lot of pollution. So, you know, that's another big worldwide vulnerability and one that the Biden administration called out in its first 100 days as being something we need to focus on. And then there's the war in Ukraine, which, you know, it's just we've heard all the horror stories about what's happening with respect to uh, human rights and, um, you know, the damage that's been done and the and the death and so forth. But the Russians also bombed a lot of factories, including neon factories and neon gas is used in semiconductor production. So it's used in the etching process. So with the shortage of neon gas difficulty in semiconductor production around the world, shortages everywhere, a growth market. I mean, these are all supply chain issues that are being whipsawed across the world. Uh, and these are things we have to work on trying to solve. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's plenty of food for thought and for podcasts for the next 50 <laughs> years, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, but the geopolitical situation around the world is very important. And, you know, we never we didn't think about that stuff so much in the past. 
Um, you know, when you're making a decision whether to go to China or not, I can't think of any executive who talked to me about the geopolitical situation. But today, it's front and center. Yeah, that's uh, well, it sounds like there's a great opportunity for Caroline to be a supply chain influencer with all this uh, stuff out <laughs> right, there. Yes. But uh, but I, what I'm wondering is, you know, when I was listening to you, I couldn't help but think, well, what what can a company do like th- like all these things are are happening and you mentioned like there's there's speculation about Taiwan and that could happen and and if you're in in a supplier shoes because I think a lot of our audience they they work in manufacturing they make stuff and if you're in their shoes like what what should they do because I think there's an element here of like maybe I was thinking about you know reshoring for this or that reason but now there's this other geopolitical component that's driving some behavior and where there might be an even greater benefit like what's your what's your reaction if you're thinking about if I'm a manufacturer like what what should I be thinking about doing? Yeah, well, I, you know, the one really important thing is to mitigate your risk um, and even that out around the world by manufacturing in multiple locations, and that's the most important factor I think. Uh, and because you know now you've understood that there is. Um, uh, all kinds of risk out there if, you know, and it's not just the geopolitics, but let's say, for example, there's a wildfire in Australia or in the U.S. and it, you know, burns down your factory or a flood or a, tena- or a tornado. I mean, there are all kinds of global warming things that are going on now that we never worried about before. And then because of that, because you're at risk by putting all your eggs in one basket and manufacturing in only one place, what we advise all of our clients is to rethink that strategy and have it, you know, at least two and possibly three or four manufacturing locations around the world. So you can switch between those if you have to. Um, and it's not necessarily that you're doing it, you know, willy nilly, but if there's a seasonal problem or, uh, you know, or some kind of natural disaster, or some kind of war breaks out, you have alternatives. So you're really managing your risk in a way that we, we didn't really think about 20 years ago. So, you know, that, that makes the decision much more complicated as well. I, I swear, supply chain people have gotten way smarter over the past 10 years. You know, you, we, we used to worry about push, you know, making sure that the, at least I did when I was working in a logistics environment, making sure that all the shipments got off the dock at the end of the day. That was what I worried about. Right. And in today's environment, supply chain people have to think about the geopolitical situation or, you know, is is somebody going to bomb my factory? I mean, these are things we, we didn't consider in the past. It was all about dollars and cents and looking for, you know, searching out the very lowest cost place we could find. Uh, in today's environment, that decision is much more complicated. It requires strategic thinkers, better educated people. So, you know, that's what we're seeing in supply chain these days. Yeah, I think we're starting to see all of the external factors and the impact they have on supply chain. You things like government policy, international yeah. relations, natural disasters, like they all have impacts on your individual supply chain for your company. Yeah, plus they're, you know, executive supply chain executives are considering that today. In the past, you know, it was sort of an afterthought or it was kind of on the sidelines. Today, it's front and center, and these variables are considered in that decision-making process. Definitely. I'm curious, um, could you speak a little bit to the benefits that companies have seen when they do reshore? 
Yeah, well, there are you know a few big ones that jump out. Obviously, producing closer to your market, you can deliver faster. So we've, I was talking to somebody the other day, you know, we've all been trained by Amazon to expect stuff on our doorstep tomorrow, right? Right. Um, and, and that translates to industrial environments as well. There's a much more demand out there for getting things fast, fast turnaround times. And that means you either have a lot of inventory in uh, warehouses all over the place so you can deliver fast from that inventory or you shorten your supply chain. Um, and so to shorten your supply chain, you know, it's sort of a natural fit for reshoring. So you, you're manufacturing close to your market. We call that local for local, whether your market is um, in Mexico and you're manufacturing for the Mexico market and for North America, or you're manufacturing in the U S and exporting, or you're manufacturing in China for the China market, which, you know, you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot there either because China's growing at like at least 6% a year and sometimes as high as 14% a year. So, you know, growth, you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot and get out of growth markets either. You need to think about where you're manufacturing, where your customers are. So the benefit to local is faster turnaround times and faster delivery to your customers. But then there's also um, uh, the eco benefits. So most companies now have ESG on their on their board radar, uh, and that means they're paying attention to sustainability issues and more responsibility regarding the environment. Obviously, if you have a closer footprint, you have you know less pollution that's delivered into the environment. That's another big benefit, and it hits a target for for uh, boards across the world. And uh, and then another benefit is a lot, a lot of my customers were stuck in 1950s manufacturing before they went to China. So bringing stuff home today gives them an opportunity to rethink everything, rethink how they automate, how things are processed, what their factory should look like. You know, it's a it's a, a greenfield or a whiteboard, you know, opportunity to, to think about all these different um, effects. So lots of lots of good benefits, I think, um, if if you know you're considering reshoring. Um, is there any element? And I'm just going to put on my my negative hat for a second here because I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm curious what you think. Um, is there any negative impact of bringing jobs back and being able to find labor because you hear you know some of these labor shortages? Like, is that something companies have to give thought to? Yeah, definitely, labor is a big issue. Um, you know, we I just saw a statistic um, yesterday that there are nine million nine million plus job openings across America and about three hundred and fifty million people out of work. Unfortunately, the people who are out of work don't have the skills to go into those kind of jobs. And so, you know, I always I've been thinking for a while that it isn't really a jobs problem that we've got. It's a skills problem. So we need to focus on education and training in order to produce the kind of people that are going to run robots, that are going to be able to operate, you know, sophisticated machine tools that can use a computer. You know, my grandfather was a metal worker and I can remember him coming home from work and he was dirty and smelly and had grease under his fingernails. I mean, it's gross, you know. That's not what manufacturing looks like today. And uh, today's environment, I, I live in Silicon Valley. So manufacturing around here, you got to be in a bunny suit and, you know, 
you have a respirator on it's like <laughs> you don't introduce any particles into the manufacturing site but you know most manufacturing environments today are much cleaner environments there are computers all over the shop floor right and because you're you're moving inventory and you're testing quality with computers and you're uh, you know changing locations and you know computers are just a natural part of of manufacturing these days and those skills are different from what my grandfather had. I mean, there's no way he could have operated in an environment like today. And I think that's the mismatch that we've got is we've got people who are unemployed, but they don't have the right skills. So, yeah, I mean, there are job openings and job shortages, but I think it's really more of a skill shortage than it is a, a job opening shortage. Interesting. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. Um, and I always wondered about that because I think you have to give thought like, you know, what does the labor market look like? Um, okay, I have one more question. Um, and then we could turn it around to you to ask us a question. And we usually let our guests ask us questions okay. because we've been peppering you with questions for about a half an hour now. You've been doing a great job, but you probably, you know, want to turn the tables. And you as a podcaster, I mean, this might be dangerous territory, Carol, because <laughs> I don't know what kind of questions we're going to get. Buckle before up. we get there, but, but before we get there, I'm, I'm just a couple of things. And to wrap up this point, because I think those have been listening, you know, I think there's a few things that stand out. And I think there are companies that have strategy on their supply chain. And they say, my supply chain gives me a strategic advantage over my competitors. And, you know, you're talking about some of the benefits of reshoring. And maybe that's that's interesting to some people to think, maybe I'm going to start to look at my strategy a bit differently. And you're talking about diversification of the supply chain to say, like, that's one thing you should try and do in order to offset any sort of risk that you're just not in one place, you're not as exposed. And, and I hear all those things and I wonder if I'm a supplier, I'm probably thinking, okay, these are all things I have strategic intent. I want to be diversified. I want to take, I want to have efficiency. I want to gain some of these benefits, but where do I start? Like if I'm, if I haven't started on this journey and I'm just sort of thinking about it in my office, what, what do you think the first, what does step one look like for most companies who haven't really done anything yet? But it, it is something that could be interesting for them. Yeah, and this is uh, exactly the reason why we I wrote the reshoring guidebook. It's a step-by-step -step methodology to help companies through this kind of decision. I think, you know, um, there has to be high-level support for it. So the first step is to make sure the executives are on board, um, that it isn't, you know, just a, well, we're going to do a total cost of ownership, which is kind of a, baseline, you know, easy to do sort of analysis. Um, you have to have the backing and the and the emphasis and the support for this kind of decision. So step one is to make sure everybody's on board, even if it means just thinking about this or just evaluating the potential possibility. Uh, then I think, you know, after that, it sort of cascades down from there. You want to survey the environment. Ask your customers, you know, do they prefer products made in America? Uh, we, we did a study in 2020 where we asked 500 people across the country. Um, actually, I think it was like 497, but we rounded up. <laughs> um, and we said, you know, do you prefer to buy products that are made in the USA? And about 80% of the people said yes. And this is with no qualification or anything, just do you. And then we asked the natural next question was, would you pay more for them? Uh, and about 60% or so, 62%, I think, 
said, yes, they'd be willing to pay up to, to 20% more for products made in the USA, simply because there is a perception that those products are better quality. There's mm. no proof, <laughs> you know, and I, I spent a lot of time in China. I can tell you there's plenty of just fine products coming from China. Um, but, but there's a perception out there that things made in America are better quality. Uh, and, you know, they support the economic development of, of the U.S. So there's um, some of that in that regard. So when you're making a decision, you have to understand your customers are probably going to prefer products that are made here. And then, you know, actually surveying the customers for what kind of products they would like to see as your development. You're developing uh, new new products to offer. And, you know, this is not rocket science and it's not brain surgery it's kind of a common process that you would go through in uh, product development in most companies but you overlay that with the thought that you are potentially manufacturing here so that means looking for a, a way of manufacturing in america that's more efficient and cost effective and addresses products that are actually going to be sold here uh, so, you know, there's a lot lot to it in terms of investigating the the book. Um, actually, I'm coming out with a second edition in a couple months, so uh, so you can watch for that. But the book takes you through a step-by-step -step analysis of your business and how to think through a, a reshoring decision. Um, you know, go through all of the steps, but, you know, it's a pretty normal new product introduction decision process that you would find in most companies. Great. I think people will find that very helpful. So, all right. So we're at the point where it's your turn. You can turn the tables. Um, <laughs> you've been, you've been doing a great job answering questions. I think it's been very interesting, insightful, but, but now's your chance. Go ahead. Fire away. Question for myself, Caroline, both of us, what, whatever suits you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, you know, on the, on the uh, road and the, the side of the road that's um, leaning on technology introduction um, into supply chain. So I think it's very important for new technology. So I would say to you, uh, because you both have uh, technology background in global supply chain. So watching where your, where your goods are, um, being up to date on that, electronic documents, all that kind of stuff, and the use of artificial intelligence in, in, uh, in, um, that, in that kind of environment, in um, technology environment. So the question is, what are you seeing in terms of the development of technology and support of supply chains? All right, Caroline, do you want to take that question first or second? <laughs> I'll let you defer or you can take the question. Um, I'll let you go first, Don. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, I think, first of all, it's really cool being in supply chain because I think for a long time it's been regarded as sort of the stone age of um, industries in that, yeah. you know, it felt like we were just... Uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, rowing ships across the ocean and now we're, you know, have powered ships. So, um, the, and, and I think, you know, that's of course a metaphor, but I think it's pretty true that you felt like some of the technology was really bad. And I think it was more a function of the fact that, um, carriers, ocean carriers had very lean, uh, margins that they weren't, they had very weak balance sheets and they weren't investing in technology. They might have been investing in ships. Um, they might have been investing in like containers, but uh, it's a very asset based company. So it's a uh, very expensive business to run. And if you're going to keep up with your competitors, uh, the name of the game was to grow. So I think for a long, long time, that was that was where companies were at. 
But I think today that started to change and you start to see a lot more venture capitals paying attention to uh, the supply chain space and investing in different types of companies. Yeah. Um, I think the, the sexiest space right now is with respect to visibility um, and seeing where your stuff is. And, um, you know, while there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry, so there used to be 30-ish uh, ocean carriers in uh, the late 90s, and now there's down to maybe like nine or 10, you could argue, but uh, there's not that many. Um, so, so that's a benefit that you don't have all this variability. But part of the problem is that if I want to see something, I have to figure out what each company's website looks like and how I get information. Maybe they are able to send APIs, maybe they're only on EDI. So they're in different places. And these companies that are out there that can basically ingest data from carriers and present it to you and maybe a backend API, I think is something that's super powerful because um, as you talk about things accelerating and I want to be able to deliver my goods faster, I have to know where it is in order for me to take action. And if I'm just going on you know, one carrier's website and then going to the next carrier's website, it's tough. I think the involvement of third party forwarders, you know, makes it tough. And so, or maybe sometimes it makes it easier depending on who it is. And Caroline might have some perspective on that. But, um, I, I think that there's a lot in, in the visibility and knowing where things are because yeah. I think data quality has been poor for a long time. And now you've seen a real acceleration. And, um, there's a number of companies just fighting in that space because, uh, I think it's, it's super valuable, but it's just a question at this point of who can do it well. Yeah, I think a lot of the tech push has come as a result of the pandemic. Supply chain was constantly in the news. Um, and so you had people learning about what the current state of <laughs> tech is for supply chain and logistics. Um, so I think with that came a demand from consumers to have more tech visibility and um, to have more automation within the industry. But um, I think it's interesting to see all of the pieces kind of coming together. It's kind of like a big puzzle. There's certain parts of the process that are getting automated. And I think there's obstacles to other parts. Um, there's unions and things like that that are going to make it very difficult to automate those sorts of roles, like at ports, for example. But um, I think slowly the puzzle is kind of coming together. Um, and ultimately, it'll be much easier in the future. Um, have a lot more visibility. You'll be able to move things quicker with a a lot less hands having to manually do things and remove the possibility of errors too, in that sense. Yeah, that's, that's great insight. And hopefully we've done a good job answering your question. I know you've done a great job answering guys. All right, (laughs) super. So Rosemary, I think a lot of people probably listened. Um, Where do they want to find you? Like, let's say if they want to find out more, is there, is there a website or an email or how, how should people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, so we have a very large website where we publish all of our research, our case studies, our white papers, our um, other other kind of research that we do, and that's uh, reshoringinstitute.org, and it's all free. You don't have to sign up for anything and just download stuff. Um, we think it's a public service, and because we're a nonprofit organization, we just make it available for free. Uh, so it's www.reshoringinstitute.org. And you can reach me at R Coates, R C O A T E S, at reshoringinstitute.org. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Uh, I can't wait to hear the listener feedback. And for our listeners, don't forget wherever you find our podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you download it, rate us, review us, leave us feedback. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Supply Chain Secrets Podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast network.